Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 44. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Mike Fidanza, professor of plant and soil sciences at Penn State for a conversation on fairy ring management. No matter your location, fairy ring can be a problematic and persistent pest to manage turf. Fairy ring symptoms are caused by a wide range of fungal species, which can colonize and develop in a variety of environmental conditions. Dr. Fidanza's insight as a career-long researcher of fairy ring provide him unique insight into fairy ring management and prevention. Turf Dudes is a Herald's agronomy team collaboration of Dr. Raymond Snyder, Dr. Paul Giordano, and Dr. Jeff Atkinson. Turf Dudes is produced by Brandon Clark. Enjoy the show. Dr. Fidanza, I appreciate you joining us today. And Paul, thanks for setting all this up. But the, the topic of today is, is farrier ring. But before we get into that, I guess we need to introduce our guest, Dr. Mike Fidanza, who is of the Penn State Berks campus and, and noted expert on all things fungicides and soil and wetting agents and specifically uh, what we're talking about today as a fairy ring. So before we get into the meat of the conversation, can you kind of give us an idea of your background? Some folks, you know, may not be familiar with some of the work that you completed in the past, just kind of how you got to where you are today and um, how you became uh, the fairy ring guy, per se. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks, everyone, for, for uh, having me on today. Uh, wait, I got some props here. Um, this might, this might help explain. I don't know if you can see this. It's a little <laughs> ceramic of mushrooms, you know, and, uh, and and that relates to my background. I I grew up in in Pennsylvania, and my father was a mushroom farmer, a son of Italian immigrants from us uh, uh, southern Italy on the uh, Adriatic side. And I'll, I'll come back for another podcast and talk about my Italian heritage sometime. But uh, I grew up on a mushroom farm. And uh, uh, learn how to grow mushrooms, the little white button agaricus mushrooms there. And was interested in, in agriculture, uh, wanted to go to Penn State to study agriculture from Pennsylvania. That's where you go to Penn State. And um, my goal was to come back and take over the mushroom farm and make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I took a little left turn when I got up to Penn State. I really got into uh, uh, soil science, plant science, turf. I uh, met with Dr. Don Waddington, stayed there for a master's degree. And then from there, I went to University of Maryland, got a Ph.D. in plant pathology with Peter Noden. So it's funny how I started out one way, ended up another. Uh, just re- as as many of you know, once you get into research, uh, I really enjoyed it. And and that's why I, I went on for that. And um, uh, I, my, my family, we don't have the mushroom farm anymore, but I do have the uh, cousins and La Familia that are still in the industry, still in the business. But uh, so from I graduated in 95 in Maryland. I guess I'm getting older now. And from 95 to 2000, I was in the industry. I worked for a company, Agrivo. If you were, some, of the, some of the older folks may know what Agrivo was, a merger of Herx and uh, Shearing. They became Agrivo. Eventually, they became Aventus, and, and then they became a bear, acquired them. So I was in research development. I had positions like, like you three do. And, and then in 2000, uh, started a job at Penn State, the Berks campus in Reading, Pennsylvania, about an hour west, west of Philadelphia. It's a research teaching appointment, heavy teaching appointment, though. I teach uh, uh, freshman and sophomore level students, intro turf, intro soils, other botany courses. And then I have a, a research appointment as well. I do some extension outreach. And, and I think just... Uh, not to take up a lot of time here, uh, the uh, the farrowing piece um, just always was interested in that. I think because of my mushroom farming background, I guess, and and uh, I just I remember working with uh, the late Dr. Houston Couch, talking about farrowing with him, and and the late Dr. Noel Jackson up at Rhode Island, and uh, they both encouraged me to 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 work on farrowing because no, nobody else really was doing that. Uh, Dr. Bruce Martin there at Clemson. Uh, he encouraged me as well. He started out his PhD in fairy ring and then switched to rhizoctonia. So th- that's how it became uh, uh, this, this working with fairy ring, really, uh, because it was such a, a persistent problem. It still is. And and uh, the more I studied, the more I, I scratched my head and, and don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that, that's that's a long story short. On a personal note, I have for your, for your audience out there, I have five children. Uh, three are in college. Uh, two are in high school. So I'm still working for a living. <laughs> so not 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 slowing down anytime soon. Oh, 
I'm curious, what does a mushroom farm look like? I, I, that's foreign to me completely. Oh, I mean, we're talking well, how many acres of a facility is this? Yeah, so well, sometimes if you're up in the Philadelphia area, you call me, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to give you a tour. They're basically, sure. th- think of the size of um, the way they're grown in Pennsylvania. And over 60% of the um, edible mushrooms are grown in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, maybe that number might be a little higher because we have such a concentration of farms. Th- think of a greenhouse. They're the size of uh, greenhouse structures, but they're concrete buildings. They're concrete. Um, they're enclosed. There's no light. There's lights inside, fluorescent lights inside, but you don't need sunlight to, to, grow, to grow the mushrooms. And they're grown in in, in sort of beds, uh, six six high, four across. And and on these in, inside these beds are several inches thick of of the of the substrate, the, the growing media. Which is a composted sort of material that um, that the the uh, the basidiomycete colonizes, just like ferrying does on it with 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 turf. How it colonizes the thatch and the upper root zone in the soil. The same thing happens in mushroom farms. So there's think of those big buildings. There there's about eight thousand square feet of growing space in a a Pennsylvania mushroom house, as it's called. And um, again, there may be maybe 60 to 80 feet long, 30 to 40 feet wide, depending. So they're they're pretty formidable structures, and they have these large air conditioning air handler units on either end because they're always moving air in and out of the structure. So it's uh, it's it's uh, really interesting uh, how it's done. Um, over in Europe, it's more mechanized, you know, but in, in Pennsylvania, it's still sort of the old school way. But I think eventually. Um, eventually the farms in Pennsylvania will have to sort of modernize, but that, that may be a next generation thing. So, so why is Pennsylvania such a hub for mushroom farming? That promise guys is my last question on mushroom farming. Oh, no, no, that's, I'm just, yeah. I'm just, it's fascinating I'm, stuff. I love that's it. That's okay. I'm, I'm working on a, I'm working on the history of the Pennsylvania mushroom industry actually. And, uh, <laughs> uh it really, it's fascinating because many of the, uh, the uh, Italian immigrants that settled in the Philadelphia area, this is, goes back to the late 1890s, early 1900s, they started working for, there was a tremendous amount of greenhouse growers in these in this um, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Upper Delaware, Maryland area, um, cut roses. And, and um, anyway, th- this was a big greenhouse growing area, and they would hire all the uh, Italian immigrants to work in the greenhouses. And what those Italian guys would do was they would get the, the composted beds and things, and they would grow mushrooms because they're used to eating mushrooms over there in Italy in their diet. And so one thing led to another. And around the 1920s, um, some of the folks that were uh, the greenhouse growers, they were Quaker descent, the Quakers, Quaker folks. They, um, they, they started uh, developing sort of the mushroom industry. And hiring the Italian immigrants to work in the mushroom farms, and then most of these Italian immigrants became mushroom farmers themselves. The Pennsylvania State University uh, hired some plant pathologists back in the 20s and 30s to d- help develop the mushroom industry. And uh, anyway, so that's why it, it happened here in southeastern Pennsylvania because of all the all the Italian immigrants, uh, really for no other reason than that. Uh, and, nothing, uh, nothing specific about the environment there, the temperatures or the humidity and the atmosphere. Just it just had to do with their immigration, right? Exactly, because the, the mushroom they developed a mushroom growing system in these concrete bunker houses, like like again the size of greenhouse, and uh, it's a controlled in, indoor environment. Um, now, they, they grow mushrooms up in Connecticut, down in Tennessee, uh, California, Florida, Texas, uh, the Midwest. They have mushroom growing facilities. Um, so you can grow them anywhere you have a because they're a controlled environment, you know. But you're right, Raymond. The reason why here in, in, in the eastern Pennsylvania is because of yeah, the, uh, the Italian immigrants settled here and that's, they just started growing mushrooms here. And, wow. and it was many, many back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. All these little I call mom and pop farms, you know. Um, t- today there's um, you, they're they're large, larger sort of corporate type farms. Uh, what it's what it's uh, what it's like today. But but back then it was 
um, collection of really small farms. Anyway, so so it is a unique history of, of Italian heritage in a way. Nice. And, uh, and there's a lot of uh, – and most of them, the Italians, are from southern Italy. Uh, that's where most of the immigration came from. And uh, and it's it's tied to the, the Quakers that settled Pennsylvania and started growing – now the, the the Quakers that grew the the, uh, the the green had the greenhouses here in Pennsylvania. They grew a lot of cut roses, star roses is a famous one, and others. That that happened here. The nursery industry was big in Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, because of the environment, because of the weather, and because of close proximity to Philadelphia, New York City, and all that. So so there is a, a backstory there as well. What's that real expensive mushroom that? Uh, they use the shavings. Oh, the truffle. Truffle. Yes. <laughs> truffle. You're rocky. Yeah, the truffle is. Uh, we. I wish we could grow them here. Uh, <laughs> I wish we could. We could make a lot of money. <laughs> I hear if you if you if you if you uh, apply some poly, Harold's polyon fertilizer <laughs> on an area, it's really beneficial for truffles. This is. This is slowly becoming my favorite of the podcast. We're talking yeah, southern we're, Italian immigration. We're talking Italian foods and mushrooms. And now right. we're talking polyon. This is great. I'm sorry, I digress. But Jeff, thank you for asking. I'm always happy to talk about that topic. It's very unique. No, no it's, it's fascinating, fascinating how, how an industry like that becomes, becomes set in a random, yes. relatively speaking, place in the United States. Now it still persists today. It's, it's incredible. Right. Well, it's, and now it's the... You know, the uh, third, third. Now we're up to third generation of the grandfather, the the son, and now the grandson, and the grandson's children are now operating these businesses. It's it's very interesting to see that. Um, and we have the the mushroom festival, the first September every year in, in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. It's a it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday big weekend event called the Mushroom Festival. They celebrate all things um, mushrooms, and and you know, it's been a fun sort of community event. Uh, for the small town. Uh, incidentally, real quick, I was off the topic, but Kennett Square, again, this is southeastern PA where many of the mushroom farms are located in the surrounding area. Kennett Square, you may remember from history, in September of 1777, George Washington and his troops fought the Battle of, of the Brandywine there. They they lost that battle and retreated to Valley Forge where they hunkered down over the winter and uh, they learned to fight and and went on to win the Revolutionary War. Is uh, now you know the rest of the story. Right. <laughs> so there's a Revolutionary War tie in there as well. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a. So really, being a, a fun guy is in your DNA. Hey oh, hey oh. Correct, correct. But now, Raymond, before we go, yeah. before we go any further, um, I understand there's a there's a restaurant there in Lakeland. That has a breakfast dish called the Dr. Raymond Snyder breakfast plate. <laughs> what, what exactly is that? Because I want I want to order that next time I go to, down. Wow, I can't believe that the like that the, it's made it all the way to Pennsylvania. It's yeah, yeah I don't they, I don't know if they call it the Dr. Raymond. It's just the Raymond. It hasn't really achieved that level of notoriety, but it's. <laughs> It, it's it's just an egg over medium, two pieces of bacon, and uh, buttered buttered uh, white toast or wheat toast, whatever they have. So that, okay. that and I still have my. This is from this morning and still has ice in it. That's how cold it is here. It still has ice. Oh, I love it from this morning. Add, so. add some mushrooms to it next time. Call it the the Raymond with the Pennsylvania <laughs> side thing. That'll be the Fidanza. That's the Fidanza. Okay. The hybrid. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Why Those not? are the Raymond office hours. Any anytime you need to get pick Raymond's brain, that's where you got to go. That's right. We start the morning there every morning. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh man! Well, got it ready for you before you show up. All right. Well, this has been a good podcast. I think we should just end that's it right. here because this is the. <laughs> so, so Doc, as we get into this fairy ring discussion, I mean, a little bit more. You, you'd mentioned the more you work with this this you know issue, the the more you scratch your head, and I think. Yeah. Coming off of this year, at least in my experience up here in the Midwest, Northeast, it's been one of the worst years for a lot of golf course superintendents and turf managers for ferry ring. I think a lot of it stems from the weather patterns that we saw this year. And I guess just, you know, in your travels and what you've seen this year, maybe touch on why do you think that is uh, some of the challenges that you've encountered um, with ferry ring this year, particularly. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting 
talking to superintendents, visiting courses and getting emails and correspondence from folks. Um, every, it seems like uh, every farriering case is unique and different. Um, <laughs> hate to say that, but, but there are some, some commonalities. Um, now, if, if you think about popping, if you think about the, the, the farriering is there, as you know, they're caused by these Basidiomycete fungi, these mushroom forming fungi, and they're, they're wood decaying fungi. And, um, and they, um, uh, there's about 60 species documented in the literature to cause farrowing symptoms in turf. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we probably deal with maybe a dozen or so more common. And the one common theme, though, among when I see farrowing sites is, 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 like you mentioned, the drought stress. Uh, and let's, let's, let's d- dive in a little, little further below the surface. Let's, look, let's talk about soil moisture mm-hmm. and the, the water status in that root zone. When, when that root zone starts drying out, it seems like the, the farrowing can kick in. Um, over the years, and this goes back to talking to, um, to folks like Dr. Couch and, and Dr. Jackson, Bruce Martin, and, and you guys may remember Stan Zontek, USGA mm-hmm. Green Section Agronomist, and even Darren Bavard, who's, who lives in Kennett Square, and chatted with him about it over the years. It seems like when we get these wet, dry cycles, um, that – that triggers, as I say, triggers the appearance of farrowing symptoms. We get we get these raining events, and it gets dries, and it's wet, and then it dries. Mm-hmm. And and this, I'm going to circle back real quick to my mushroom growing days, and on the mushroom farm, we would irrigate the uh, the substrate, the mushroom growing beds. We would irrigate the composted material. We would irrigate heavily, and then move air through the house and dry it out. We would wet it and dry it. So we had these wet dry cycles going on to to get the fungus to to colonize the substrate and produce the mushrooms, the fruiting bodies. And I think the same thing is happening in our turf systems, these wet, dry, wet, dry cycles, things, the root zone starts drying down. And sometimes that's on purpose, right? We're trying to dry down the root zone. We want things sort of dry, firm, okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the basidiomycete can really start colonizing the, the thatch and the, and the soil. And then, and then things get hydrophobic. And the site becomes water repellent. And then the fungus is trying to reproduce. It's trying to grab as much moisture as it can. The mycelium starts to really become aggressive and colonize the thatch. It wants to produce those mushrooms, right? It wants to go into the reproductive mode. So I think when we allow things to dry down too much, um, that's that triggers the appearance of these farrowing symptoms. We Talking to some old timers uh, over there in, in Europe, um, on occasion, I go over to, to England to their British turf conference, and you chat with some folks, and they remember some of the green keepers telling them from the 1950s and 60s that, that back then they wanted to dry the course down as much as possible. And when they saw the appearance of these fairy rings, that's when they know they reached the uh, their goal. That was their indication mm-hmm. of, okay, we were going to dry things down till we see fairy rings. <laughs> and so, anyway, t- to your point, though, Paul, um, uh, when, when we see uh, these, these extended dry periods, drought stress and heat stress, that's when we, we can we often see the uh, the appearance of these of these fairy rings. And then sometimes they start out just type two, right? Dark green mm-hmm. rings and they may fade away. Oftentimes they'll, they'll progress into the type one, the dead necrotic zones. And then that, that's a big problem because now you have these these dead rings, arcs, circles, semicircles. And basically, they're very hydrophobic, very water repellent, and uh, then it becomes a rescue and recovery mission. Right. And again, thinking about the fungus, though, it's breaking down that organic matter, mm-hmm. right? Releasing the nitrogen. Well, it's releasing ammonium that's eventually going to get converted to nitrate, taken up by the plant. But oftentimes, what happens when these hydrophobic areas show up or start start to develop, the ammonium builds up, and we can get elevated levels of ammonium. Some of the research I've done over the years looking at soil samples of affected versus healthy turf, you see elevated levels of ammonium, ammonium three to 400 parts per million. And that's just detrimental to roots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just a harsh environment. And then there was, the, there was, there's some researchers at the university of Naples, not Naples, Florida, Naples, Italy, <laughs> that are doing work on, on these farrowing fungi. So I've been in contact with them and, uh, 
what they're looking at it from a soil biology point of view. They were um, examining the the uh, bacteria and soil uh, microorganisms in farrowing affected sites in in pastures and in, in, in lawns. Mm-hmm. And and what they found is again the um, these farrowing fungi. They're what they call ecosystem engineers. They're trying to manipulate their own environment to their benefit, colonizing the areas, becoming hydrophobic, and it's shifting the populations of certain bacteria and things like that. And it's kind of a cool article. It's kind of a theoretical discovery kind of science thing, um, but it does indicate again how hydrophobic these farrowing sites can become how water repellent, how difficult it is to get that turf to recover. So I think, again, uh, different parts of the country with different drought stress, like like Raymond, you're down in Florida. Um, your farrowing seasons tends to be from what? From like November, December, January down into May, your dry season. Uh, up here in, in mid-Atlantic region, we'll see farrowing May and June, especially July, July and August. If we Oftentimes we'll have a dry September and farrowings are just busting out. Um, and even this summer, there was one golf course where the superintendent went away for the weekend. Um, his assistant kind of sort of forgot to keep things watered or in check, and they live on the edge anyway. And things got dry a little too dry down a little too much past their soil moisture threshold. And sure enough, within a couple of days, fairing started blowing up on some greens. It happens that fast. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's a uh, that's a. Uh, um, you got me talking on a couple of my favorite topics, growing mushrooms, Italian food, and fairy ring. Paul, you got me going. Sorry about that. But now to your point, the, the, the drought stress, I think, drives a lot of the uh, appearance of fairy ring symptoms, uh, especially on sand. You, know, you noted that there, when the uh, these occurrences uh, might happen north versus um, southern regions, are there, are there different are there different species? with your relative from the northern regions to the southern regions or, you know, in different um, symptoms, re- one relative to the other? Or we talk about, talk about the same uh, fungal species? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the answer is uh, yes and no. I think, I think we do have similar species, uh, northern turf, southern turf, you know, cool season versus warm season. Uh, but there's some work out of North Carolina State University years ago with, with Dr. Lee Miller there when he was getting his PhD under um, under Dr. Lane Treadway. Um, he he um, was focused on those uh, puffball type uh, fairy rings, the lecto, um, lycoperdon fairy ring species and, and vasilium and some others. So I think in your Bermuda grasses, you tend to have maybe more puffball types. Um, now we could have our we could have these puffball types up here in our cool season grasses. In our cool season grasses, I think we tend to have more of the toadstool types, the agaricus and 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 others. Um, that's just observation. I don't have exact good survey research data on that. Um, uh, but that that's sort of my 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 gut feeling. Some of those uh, puffball types, they really like warmer temperatures, uh, sandier soils. Um, when I was visiting my buddy, Dr. John Cesar, down there on occasion, um, I would always come across these, these sort of different puffballs, bovistas, one species, on those Bermuda grass greens down there. Southern California, the same thing. You see a lot of bovista puffball types. Um, but what's interesting about whether you, you deal with the, the toadstool type or the puffball type, they're all sort of the Bacidiomyces group, and, and they all produce very similar symptoms, the type 1, type 2 symptoms, type 3. Uh, in in, uh, in turf. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I've had some um, turf managers say that they have when they've they have applied fungicides, mm-hmm. and then shortly thereafter they've observed these different above ground structures. Is is oh, yeah. is the fungus responding to the the fungicides by producing these fungal yeah. bodies? Oh, Raymond, I, I think that's a very good observation. I've, I've seen that where um, folks will make a fungicide application. And you got to think about what's happening. That fungicide, it's uh, it's going to shut down the, the Bacidiomyces, the fairing fungus. It's, gonna att- it's attempting to suppress it and shut it down. So that fungus is going to react and it's going it's, to – it's trying to go through its reproductive cycles, trying to survive. So oftentimes you will see um, 
that the mushroom is in its sort of its death throes, if I could, if I, mm-hmm. I, not unpleasant yeah. to say, but it'll produce the mush, it'll produce the fruiting bodies. And yep. uh, you make an application of a fungicide, and and uh, uh, so sometimes you won't see anything. And then sometimes you'll see, especially after it rains or you irrigate, you'll see mushrooms popping up. It's just the fungus is trying to trying to survive, you know, one last attempt at it, you know. So it's um, not a bad thing. It's kind of a visual indicator that maybe you've had an impact on the, yeah. the fungus. I think that's a good way to, to think about that. Yeah. And that's really that that helps identify what species you're dealing with, too. If you if you can look at the fruiting body, or the, the mushroom that pops up there. Um, then we have a better chance of identifying. We can identify with molecular methods and things like that, but but um, I, I just find it easier just when you have the, the mushroom with the fruiting body itself, it's easier to, <laughs> to identify. Excellent. Um, Thank you. But no, but that, that's, a, that's a good point with the fungicide applications. Um, and I've seen some fungicide applications on sites where the fairing, it, it got worse before it got better. Um, if you think about this, you make a fungicide application, you're going to shut down that, that fungus. It's still, that site's still hydrophobic and water repellent. So it's going to take, takes a while to recover. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it may, it may, it may get, like I say, get worse before it gets better you know, in, a, in a way. Yep. So along those lines, you mentioned about the wetting drying cycles and becoming hydrophobic seems to be a pretty good theme of, of dealing with fairy ring issues. I mean, are there cultural practices that, that a superintendent can can implement to one help to prevent fairy ring, but then also once once it is there, to help to help reclaim those areas uh, that are hydrophobic uh, and more rapidly than they yeah. would, I guess, on their own. Yeah, I think uh, um, first of all, there's only there's, there's just water in here. I swear it's Friday happy hour, but I know there's just water in my, my <laughs> cup. <laughs> um, yeah, I think over the years I've seen. Sites that are that are thatchy, uh, thick thatch layers um, that they're more prone to fairy ring. Um, sites, you know, anything a superintendent can do with organic matter management, obviously, you know, mitigating that thatch buildup and you know, uh, sand top dressing, that kind of thing. Um, uh, core airifying or dry jet. So think in terms of, of organic matter thatch management. There's one site near me. Uh, they have uh, Kentucky bluegrass roughs, tremendous amount of thatch. It's a public course, and it's a nice course, but, you know, they, they obviously can't airify and co-airify their roughs. And they get some beautiful fairing shows up in those thatchy roughs every year. Um, and, again, it's just a tremendous food source. These fairing fungi, they're wood-decaying fungi. They like lignin, and we're going to find a lot of lignin in the thatch. So that's so that's one of the things you can do, you know, if folks are dealing with chronic fairing sites, take a look at the organic matter management. Um, also, what I like to do when you know going after fairing, uh, as far as other sort of cultural practices, if you have a site that's active, um, let's call it an early curative program. I like to punch holes with needle tine if you can, um, uh, and or coarified. That's that's more destruct, destructive, of course, disruptive. But punch holes, okay. You want to get some air into that root zone. If, if there's a buildup of ammonium, you want to sort of help vent that. So you you punch holes, and then you you apply a soil surfactant or a wetting agent, and you water it in. You want to try to combat any potential hydrophobicity that's going to happen. Um, that's a that's a, a, a softer approach. A little a little more of a harder approach would be to tank mix a fungicide with the soil, with the wetting agent, tank mix them, water them in. And uh, I would just, just as a precaution, just double check the fungicide label for all the language, you know, on um, on, on fairing and, and the label rate and the instructions and things like that. But I've always had success tank mixing a wetting agent with a fungicide and watering it in. Now, I've had great success with applying the punching holes, applying the wetting agent, watering it in. Then coming back the next day and applying a fungicide, watering it in. Um, that's a lot of extra work, a lot of extra steps. Mm-hmm. You can do that on small test plots and things like mm-hmm. that. Relatively yeah. easy. But in the real world, that's a challenge. So tank mixing the two and watering them in. But don't forget to water them in. And you really got to 
to, to, to water that material in. I like water carry volumes of two to four gallons of water per thousand square feet. I know that's a lot to ask. Hopefully two gallons of water per thousand may not be so bad, but then water it in. And the question is, well, how much water? And I always pull soil core or soil profile and you try to figure out where that fairing is residing. Is it in the upper thatch? Is it electrophilic? Or is it down in the soil a little more, more edaphic? That'll kind of tell you where that wetting front needs to be uh, as far as turning on the irrigation heads and, and getting water down where it has to, has to go. Um, that's, always been a, that's always been a challenge, I think. And, and over the years, as you know, there are many, many fungicides labeled for fairing. And um, you know, back in the 90s, there was only the one flotolinol active ingredient. It was trade name ProStar that came out. And now since then, there's been many, many others. But there's always a, a, a challenge with, with these fungicides. You, you, you got to rinse them in, as the late Stan Zontek used to say, and water them in thoroughly. Um, and, then, and then you have a fighting chance, I think, to mm -hmm. suppress to suppress the, uh, the basidiomycete causing those varying symptoms. And then the, the, uh, we're relying on the superintendent agronomic skills to get that turf to recover. And this is where the wetting agent comes into play because those sites are very hydrophobic, or many of them can be. And I don't know if you guys have ever done this. You pull soil core, soil profile, and you put some drops of water on the, on the profile. And you, you where the drops of water just sit there, that indicates that's a hydrophobic little layer zone. Mm -hmm. And to me, that tells me, okay, that's, that's where the fairing is, is parking itself. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that helps. That helps the cause. So, yeah, as far as cultural practice go, and then there's the old-fashioned, you know, you guys are in the fertilizer business. When you have those dark green rings, sometimes you can apply different amounts of fertilizer to mask the symptoms, right? <laughs> how much fertilizer you need it just depends on how dark green those rings are <laughs> you know so I, and i've seen sites do that very effectively kind of mask the symptoms get everything nice and dark green and blends it all in so okay no harm no foul on that no but so, it is interesting there's no rhyme or reason why fairing doesn't i get this question a lot too is is there certain turf gray species that favor fairing over the other and that that's not the case it's um uh, it's we're talking about the soil and the root zone. Fairings tend to be more severe in sand-based systems, but um, regardless, regardless of the turf species, you'll see fairing everywhere. So, do these do these basidiomites? Do they just happen to be prevalent in all soils, and the conditions just happen to be right in certain areas for the proliferation of the of the fairy ring symptoms, or you know, are these pathogens being moved around in one way or another? Oh, Jeff, good question. I, I think I think you're right that these basidiomycetes, they're they're all over the place in nature. I think the, the fungi have been here before before humans, <laughs> before plants. <Sure. laughs> They've been here a long time, um, and who knows? They may have came from from the asteroid from another planet. Who knows? <laughs> but they're everywhere. They're everywhere, and it's the environment that triggers the uh, occurrences. You have to think one one mushroom produces those basidiospores, right? These spores are, they'll, can produce hundreds of thousands, millions of spores. And it just takes one spore to, it typically is in sort of stasis or rest for a long time. And under the right environmental conditions, one little spore can germinate and start to grow mycelium out in a radial fashion. Mm. just like it does in a Petri plate. And, um, the mycelium is colonizing the soil, doing its thing. Everybody's happy. But under those right environmental conditions, when it's under some sort of heat stress and drought stress, that's that's when we see these symptoms. So, yeah, they, these fungi, they're out there. They're in every soil. Um, now, what I've seen, I've seen some examples where, like, the newly constructed greens, they brought in sand, sterilized the sand or whatever and everything. There was, there was nothing in that sand. But it, it's fairing still sort of invaded the site. Mm -hmm. um, these basidiomycetes, they don't, they're not a big fan of competition. And they'll, they'll move into some sites. I've seen them move into some sand-based root zones where, especially on, on newly seeded sites or newly established sites, um, because they can kind of run through there um, without any other competition from other soil microorganisms. 
So to that to that point, Mike, you know, have you and your your research or others working on looking at what a suppressive soil might might look like? You know, I know we're kind of just scratching the surface of doing a lot yeah. of you know phytobiome and microbiome right. soil work, but what might that look like? Or can can the golf course superintendent implement you know certain biostimulants or various things to yeah. try to maybe out favor the fairy ring fungi for other microbial species? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to rely on the work done by Dr. David Zuber there at Texas A&M. He, re, he has retired, but and some others that if you grow healthy turf, the healthy turf, the roots of the healthy turf are going to select for the microbiome they want by producing various root exudates and the roots are going to produce various mucilage and various compounds that sort of selects for the the bacterial and other microorganisms that it wants. And so if you maintain healthy roots and healthy soils, I think that's the best we can do. I I can't pinpoint and say, well, if you have certain bacteria in the right, root zone, right. that's going to outcompete the fairing fungi. I think it comes down to that. Oh, it's an overused term, but it, it, plant and soil health, right? And it's, sure, it's important. Sure. We use it a lot, but it's an important term. So anything you can do as far as mowing, irrigation, fertility, to grow roots, <laughs> grow good, healthy roots. And really the biggest thing to mitigate fairing occurrence, incidence, severity is to maintain uniform soil moisture, avoid those wet, dry extremes where it's too wet or too dry. Sure. You want consistent, uniform moisture throughout the season. Uh, one way to do that is with, with irrigation practices and using wetting agents, things like that. Um, but that, there's a lot of space um, to, to do work in that whole rhizobiome, uh, rhizosphere area to look at these, these microorganisms in the root zone and can we apply certain biostimulants that um, trigger plant defense mechanisms or mm -hmm. help the plant uh, produce certain compounds with its root exudates that protects it against these fairing fungi. Again, don't forget these fairing fungi they're not they're not infecting the plants right but they're they're colonizing the soil and and they're they're making the environment unpleasant for our turf grass roots mm -hmm. so there's that, a lot of space that can happen now if, if harold's can support a lot of that research that'd be great <laughs> but no there's a lot of work being done in europe joking but all seriousness there's a sure. lot of work being done in europe um looking at the rhizosphere and 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 what that's involved with ag production so some of that's starting to spill over in the turf. So we'll see what I mean, happens in the next many Observationally, years. you said, and I think you would agree, it's, this is a very cosmopolitan fungus, right? It's, I don't like even calling it a pathogen because it's not really a direct pathogen. It's a fungus that's causing an indirect response in our plants. But because it's everywhere, I mean, it, it seems to be indiscriminate. You'll see it on greens, on fairways, sandy loams, clay soils. You know, obviously, it seems to be more, the, the symptoms are more severe in sand-based soils. So we kind of do things within the turf industry to, to make those symptoms more pronounced. But um, it's it really is a fascinating one. I mean, when it comes to chemical management, because we're trying to control a fungus that is not directly affecting our plants, I think turf managers want that immediate response, right? They want to <laughs> spray it and see it a checkup in disease symptoms immediately. And I... With fairy ring, we don't get that. No. So in your experience, I mean, maybe touch on some of the chemical side of controls, you know, DMIs versus strobilia and fungicides. I know because it's such a diverse pathogen or mm -hmm. fungus, they tend to respond differently to different chemistries. So, you know, what are your BMPs for chemical management, so to speak? And what do you find tends to work the most consistently? Yeah, well, um, that's a good question. I've, I've, um, I've seen... Many fungicides work well at suppressing fairy ring, and I've seen many fungicides fail. And it, the, the failure is not related to the active ingredient. It's basically the delivery and, and not watering it in enough, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, also, I guess I'm not sure uh, how this uh, perception became or how we perceive fairy ring as is okay, I'll make an application of a fungicide and that'll knock fairing out and I'll I'll control it the rest of the season. I've seen sites where folks apply fungicide and suppresses the fairing, the symptoms subside, turf recovers, 
and the rest of the summer, the season, no problem. Hey, one application, I got season-long control. I'm a genius. But I've seen other sites where you make an application, three to four weeks later, ferrying comes back. You make an application, suppresses it. A few weeks later, it comes back again. It just depends. Maybe it, it, it's, it's, it could be species-related, environment-related. Sure. So with, with the fungicides, let's take a step back here. The first one was the Flutalanil was labeled in the 90s, and that was a ProStar. That was a WP and uh, edible powder formulation. And, and I remember working with that with Peter Noden as a graduate student. And then it, now I think uh, now it's called Pedigree, a different mm-hmm. trade name. And then um, after ProStar was, uh, was Heritage was labeled, and then many, many others now. So if you look, if you look on the on the list of fungicides available for ferrin, we have so many co-formulations as well. And they're all labeled for ferrin. There's all research that supports every one of them. Mm-hmm. Are the strobies better than the DMIs, better than others? I would say no. I say they, in my opinion, they're all very, very effective, or they can be very effective, um, but they have to be applied and watered in. Um, now, I know certain manufacturers have uh, preventive programs um, for, um, and many of them are tied to soil temperatures. Yeah, usually in in the spring and you know 55 or 58 mm-hmm. Fahrenheit soil temps. You start out with one application, come back 21, 20 days with a second and a third. Yeah. Um, if if folks have chronic fairing, they may want to consider preventative programs. Um, and again, different manufacturers have different strategies and rotating different ones in. I like rotating different chemistries. I always like that for any disease disease program. Um, but with ferring, I like a, a surfactant, a wetting agent tank mix with the fungicide and watering it in thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's that's uh, that that's it may not guarantee success, but at least it's going to guarantee you, you have you have a fighting chance. Right. Okay. Right. So. There's no one fungicide that I think is the ultimate best. I, I will admit, in many of my field trials, um, I, I do use the flutalinib, and now it's called Pedigree. I always put that in there as a historical check. Mm-hmm. And there's others, um, other fungicides there. Again, Heritage is very good, Exemplar and, and Fame. And it's, I mean, Velista, and, and forgive me, I, I know Lexicon has been very popular there in, in, in Florida. Dr. John Cesar used that successfully in some sites. Every one of those fer- fungicides listed for ferring, their success stories, and forgive me for not li- listing all of them. Um, and there's some DMIs are very good. Uh, folks up here have have good luck with the, the active ingredient tebiconazole. Um, a lot of times it comes down to you see the ferring symptoms show up, and you want to make an application. I call it early curative, and this is where you make a fungicide winning application, water it in thoroughly. Come back the next day, watering again, two or three days later, watering again, get the soil moisture there where it needs to be, combat the soil hydrophobicity, let the fungicide do its thing and shut that fungus down, but then agronomically try to get that turf to recover. So I think we're lucky, you know, superintendents, we have many, many fungicides available for ferrying. You just got to find the one, I hate to say this, that works best for you. I've been on golf course where they'll use fungicide X with not very good luck. But they use fungicide Y, and, and they had good luck. And the other golf course was just the opposite. And there's no mm-hmm. rhyme or reason. Um, maybe maybe one golf course didn't water it in enough. Maybe they didn't tang mix a wetting agent with it. Um, you know, it, it, there's no um, there's no unfortunately there's no silver there's no silver bullet. Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting for Harold's to come up with something. The Doctor <laughs> Johnson's our magic elixir from Fairy Ring. <laughs> I, I would just add to your point, yeah. though, Doc, that, I mean, more often than not, when we see perceived failures with fungicide applications, it's likely due to the delivery. You know, I, I think, especially with fairy ring, because it tends to be a little deeper on that soil profile than, than many other of our pathogens, it's getting that product where it needs to be. And so I think it's an, a very important point you just made in terms of, if you know, including a, a surfactant or wetting agent, making sure you're... You're protecting that investment because let's face it, some of these products aren't the cheapest and you're probably using some pretty hefty rates to get after these fairy rings. So uh, make sure you get it to where it needs to be. I, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, you're right. They're, they're, economically, they're, they're all costs. And um, 
and it and these fungicides they're not they're not you tell me if I'm wrong you, uh, this is you guys are in this business they're not readily leachable they don't they have a strong affinity for soil and organic matter which is good mm. you know they're not going to leach several inches down into the soil I mean um, so folks really got to turn on the water and I know they're hesitant to do that sometimes um, but I've, I've seen over the years sites that, that are on soil or wedding agent programs the fairing symptoms aren't as severe. Mm-hmm. I think that's related to trying to maintain consistent and, and uniform uh, soil moisture. Yeah, I think but, to your point, you look at Dr. Kearns' recent data of, you know, right. they're putting down as much irrigation as humanly possible and yeah. not finding uh, finding next to zero active ingredient actually leaching through the soil profile. And we're only talking inches into the soil profile here. Right. And so on one hand, that's a good thing. Okay. We're not, we're not just leaching sure. fungicides into this. On the other yeah. hand, well, we like to move just a little bit into that. Patch, you know? <laughs> right. But that's where, yeah. I mean, even that work that you just mentioned, Jeff, with, with Dr. Kearns' group is, is when they've included a wetting agent in that same trial, while it was able to get the, the product down, let's say another inch, inch and a half, they were still unable to detect it beyond, I think four inches. So, it, it helps. It le- if you can just get that little bit extra push on that fungicide, I think it's, it makes all the difference. And that, that's why I like needle tining, just punching holes yeah. one or mm-hmm. two inches down there just to try to try, try to open up that site as a potential avenue to, to move the material where it has to be. Um, the, does the background or inherent fertility of the soil have any effect on the um, – fairy ring itself in terms of the symptoms or the 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 mm-hmm. effect of, of the fungi that they create those conditions i i don't i don't think so i think i think the, the, these fairing fungi they're they're adaptable to all soil conditions ph ranges um i just know in in sites that are say uh, low fertility sites or poorly nourished sites the fairing symptoms visually are just more expressed, right. more mm-hmm. pronounced. You know, um, in some of my work in the earlier in the studying these fairings, we looked at soil pH and and uh, and soil nutrient levels mm-hmm. with fairing affected sites versus unaffected sites, and there was really no difference. The only difference is in fairing affected sites, we have elevated levels of ammonium, um, and also um, tends to be higher levels of electronic uh, electrical conductivity and i think it just relates to just it's just drier soils right. and, and you know again um uh, yeah it's 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 interesting um there's no relationship with soil ph and 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 ferring like there could be with like there are with some other turf diseases turf pathogens thank you but um no this is this is a fascinating topic uh i know it's uh it's uh, I, I just wish I had like three or four graduate students to study this uh, <laughs> full time, you know, because there's so much to learn about it. Um, Paul has a huge budget here at R- for Harold's R&D, so, you know, he, he hey, can do at least you, two or all three. all you aspiring turf students out there, if you're, yeah, right. if you're looking for a Ph.D. position with Dr. Mike Fidanza, we can, <laughs> I, I, let's I, get I, something I, going here. We've got a lot to learn about fairy rings still. Right, right. We do, And I know it's frustrating um, when these fairing symptoms show up. Um, but again, I, I tell superintendents, okay, put on your agronomic hat. Um, you know, yeah, you, you can make a fungicide application and sort of shut the fungus down. But in the meantime, now you have to recover those, those sites. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Um, down, down the road, at the end of the year, you might have to slice seed into it, um, strip some sod off, that kind of thing. If it's really severe, but a lot of times that you guys are good, you know, these guys are good. They, they get that turf to recover. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, Dr. Fidanza, we appreciate your time today and kind of get towards the end of our, oh, shoot. our session here. Um, but we're, um, oh, no, no, no. We're not, we're you not can, cutting you off. Hours. Any no, 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 no. I can go for another couple hours. Hey, that's like the sun's setting behind you, though. It doesn't look like there's much daylight left up there in Pennsylvania. Oh, I know. We got a cloudy day. I got a, um, oh. If you're going to record it, I got a shout-out, a couple of shout-outs. My buddy Jeff Gregos there, Western PA, and Darren Batiski. Uh, they, they just text me. They're, they're, they're going to listen in when this is, when this is broadcast. 
So I want, I want to mention their names because they're going to buy me lunch if I mention their names. But this, this is live. Uh, this Derek's is live. Good. This is live. Uh, that's good. But I, but no, I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about fairy ring. I, I know it gets tend to be a little, uh, a little tedious to to deal with this 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 uh, this particular disease. But it's 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 all um fairing is is uh, all over the world. Uh, there's there's no exceptions. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Your knowledge and insights, I, I know, are going to be most appreciated by our customers and our listeners. Thank so we appreciate it. Thank God, I even kept up my dog Rocky. He didn't even fall. There he goes. He's listening intensely. <laughs> There's Rocky. Rocky looks like he's uh, warm today. Right. I think Rocky might be our first canine visitor on the podcast. Is that there correct, man? Well, listen, I, I, I appreciate uh, Paul and Jeff and, and Raymond. I, I appreciate all that you do with Harold's and all you do for. For all the turf turf grass industry and all all your all your support, and uh, and thank you for supporting my buddy Dr. John Cesar down there in Florida, Raymond. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and one of these days I'll make it down to your restaurant there and, and try the Raymond. I have to, I have to try yep. that. <laughs> yeah. Just, just pick a yourself. day. Pick a day that ends in Y and be there around eight or nine, and I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> Hear that, Rocky? We're going to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who knew this podcast would cover mushroom farming, the Raymond and uh, Fairy Ring, and then we'd also know, right? we'd also rocking. commit Darren Batinsky to a nice steak dinner for you as well. <laughs> that's right, man. Uh, right. That's great. Uh, good people. Well, thank you, Doc. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Mike Fidanza. A sincere thank you to Dr. Fidanza for his time. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks across our industry willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exists to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you want to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes@heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.